there's something about mother the noun that feels sometimes way too all-encompassing for me. Even if it's in a list of other things that I am, there's something about the noun that feels much more closely tied to my identity than when I start referring to like mothering and I am mothering. I'm in a season of mothering. I can mother my own children. I can mother other people's children. I can mother myself. I can mother yeah. my own mother. And I find something so uh, democratic about mm. mother as a verb that anyone can embody, even men, even people that don't identify on the gender binary. If the verb fits, great. Like, let's start naming some of the work that you are already doing to care for your people as mothering. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, today's guest is a new friend who I hope to get to know a little bit more. I absolutely loved this interview. I love her new book and I love the way that she is challenging the way that we look at some of the systems that a lot of us exist in. Lindsay and I got to sit down with Erin S. Lane, a writer, theologian, and someone other than a mother. She is the author of the new book, Someone Other Than a Mother, Flipping the Scripts on a Woman's Purpose and Making Meaning Beyond Motherhood. We had such a powerful conversation about the art of mothering, purpose, making big decisions, and living into our calling. No matter how you identify today, single, partnered, childless, mothering, a fathering, man, woman, non-binary, I believe that this is an important conversation for us all. I can't wait for you to get to know Erin. She holds a bachelor's degree from Davidson College and a master's degree from Duke Divinity School, both with a focus on gender studies. Mentored by Parker J. Palmer and the Center for Courage and Renewal, she works as a vocational retreat facilitator, helping people discern their wildest questions of purpose. So without further ado, let's jump into this incredible interview. So excited to be here today with Erin. Erin, welcome to the Living Center Podcast. Um, I had seen a lot of friends post about your book, Someone Other Than a Mother, and have been so curious about it, but am just so intrigued by sort of the concept behind Someone Other Than a Mother. Um, and would love to hear just sort of the precipitous for you for writing the book and sort of your passion around this. Oh, Yes, 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 yes. Thank you for asking me that. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk about this idea still. So I think what we celebrate matters. Mm, and I was child-free, happily, prayerfully, purposefully for a decade with my partner when we decided to foster and then unexpectedly adopted the first three kiddos from our first placement. And it wasn't until I became a mother in the like socially recognizable, legally defined kind of way that yeah. I felt like people finally celebrated my life. It was oh, wow. like they were waiting me to arrive at the like climax of adulthood. <laughs> uh, it was like they wanted to bring out the casseroles and come around me and love me and support me in ways that were really beautiful 
But yeah. like yeah. after the after the fireworks went off and um and everyone was so kind to me, I would think to myself at the end of the day, huh? Where was all of this when I was not mothering? Yeah. What was it about my life that was so uninspiring <laughs> or immature or not yet uh, recognizable yeah. to other people as a life worth living? And it made me really want to understand what it is about a woman's life that gets bifurcated into before motherhood and after motherhood. Mm-hmm. What are our narratives around the before? How are some of those narratives actually really unhelpful once you do start mothering or if you do start mothering? And what are some more life-giving, generous ways we can reimagine what a life well-lived actually looks like by talking to people who are actually going off script? Mm. Yeah, I love that. I My personal story is I'm 45 and single, and I decided to like pursue fertility stuff like a couple years ago, had a baby last December. And so definitely have lived most of my life not as a mother. And it was such an interesting journey, but I'm single. And so I feel like so much of that, like you're not fully grown up Mm. speak has been put on me as a single person I I guess because I hadn't reached that milestone. It wasn't like I felt everyone's expectation around the motherhood thing. So I associate it so much with like singleness more than motherhood. But just curious, as you've been out talking about this book, I know it's resonated a ton with probably people that are single without kids, people that are mothers, people that are married without kids. Just what is the feedback that you're hearing around that and the messaging around singleness? So I grew up Catholic. And I am trained as a theologian, so the world I know best is American Christianity. And in American Christianity, there is a family focus that assumes, like, a correct order of operations. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Um, exactly. Right? And so I think that's why often when I was talking to people who had grown up swimming in the waters of American Christianity, they said the same thing. I feel like it wasn't until I got married that then it was like, oh, now we can start pressuring you to have children. Now we can start asking when, not if. Now we can start saying, oh, you'll totally regret it if you don't. Um, But that there's a whole nother set of social (laughs) scripts that come before you get married that are still tied to this progression of, again, what we define as a life well-lived, what we define as adulthood, And some of those messages still surround single women, like your biological clock is ticking. Like if you get to be in your late 30s or early 40s and you are not worried about how you're going Mm -hmm. to procure a child, you should be. And you should um, (laughs) think seriously about ensnaring a partner. (laughs) And you should think seriously about um, your fertility. And those aren't like unimportant questions. But the anxiety that we are supposed to feel around them and the anxiety that other people feel like they get to heap on us um, is very odd and very confusing. But again, if this is the life trajectory that is most recognizable as wholly good and Mm -hmm. worthwhile, then people feel like they have access to our lives to say, okay, if you're not on a recognizable trajectory – 
I'm going to need to start saying some trite stuff to you. Yeah. <laughs> Although they don't think it's trite. Um, to move no. you along, right? I honestly think a lot of people who peddle these things that I find really hurtful, these mother scripts as I call them in the book, are doing it out of a sense of benevolence. I did this path. I I would want you to do this path yeah. too. Even, strangely, if they aren't that happy on it. They'll still yeah. be like, but this is what we do, right? And you not going the same path I did, well, that makes me have to reflect on my own life in some uncomfortable ways. Yeah. I was at a, also a Christian conference uh, several years ago, and there was somebody reporting on sort of trends and statistics and stuff. And then they, they were talking about the phenomena of failure to thrive and, mm. like, people that aren't, like, properly adulting um, and quotation marks and the statistics that they used were around kind of like singleness or like that they weren't getting married and they weren't having kids. And I was like, so I was just steaming because I'm like, if, if you are single and you're have a job and you know, it's like, you're having to do all these things all by yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like you, it's not like I'm like shirking responsibility by not having a partner. I'm like, taking on a ton of responsibility and it just felt so narrow-minded you know Mm -hmm. like the the lens with and they didn't the person didn't mean that it that way but I was like you are correlating these two things that's not fair you know yes and what's so strange (laughs) how good of you to notice (laughs) Um, I think anytime we can notice that, oh, you're not exactly saying a hurtful thing, but actually the way you are like crafting this Mm -hmm. narrative is not helpful to me, probably Mm -hmm. is not helpful to other people that are hearing this. And further, um, it probably isn't about me, right? Like anytime we can hear that and depersonalize it and actually say, huh, I wonder who it serves to say that people that aren't married or have children of a failure to thrive. And again, the second thing, so how good of you to notice? The second thing <laughs> is like the research doesn't support that. I'd be so curious to, you know, how they define thriving because if anything, the research I know says like marriage is bad for women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Men benefit from marriage, but marriage is historically like has bad health outcomes for women. Mm-hmm. And same with motherhood. There's no greater predictor of poverty than motherhood. Right. And this is not because um, <laughs> this has more to say about the country we live in um, yeah, than the ways sure. people choose to move in and out of this particular life path. But that's that's the part when Christianity gets paired with these messages about thriving that are not paired with also the reality that people are living and the social policies that are making certain things actually hard um, for people to find thriving in, that's where I get really prickly. <laughs> and that's yeah. where I want to start researching about, yeah. huh, why is it compelling to people to keep saying these scripts over and over again? And what is a more generous truth underneath mm. that we could actually replace those scripts with? A generous rewrite. Yeah, I loved all the generous rewrites you had throughout your book. It was just a little bit of a breath of fresh air for me. And I wondered as I was reading through that, The scripts aren't just hurting women who don't want to have children. They're also hurting women who currently have children and they're hurting men. And so I would just love to hear you speak a little bit to like, what do the scripts that we feel like we need to subscribe to around motherhood and around our worth in that, how do those hurt kind of those different groups of people? Because I 
I think collectively, we're all hurt when women are oppressed in this way. Absolutely. So the book is organized into nine mother scripts. And I define the mother scripts as the set of social sayings that puts motherhood on a pedestal that says mother love is a superior love. So it's not Mm -hmm. just a good, holy, sacred love. It's a superior love. It's the ultimate love. This is maternal exceptionalism. Um, The idea that there is something exceptional about the love mothers have for their children and that if you don't experience that particular form of love, you don't know love. Yeah. The script, I think that it's easiest to see the correlation between its harm Mm -hmm. for both women who aren't mothering and women who are more traditionally is the script motherhood is the toughest job. Mm. And this script is so fascinating to me how motherhood even became to be seen as vocational. I think it's a nice shift. I think motherhood as vocation opens the window for us to invite people into serious discernment about it so Mm -hmm. that it's no longer an automatic assumption that this will be a part of my life, um, but that we acknowledge that there might be calling around it. We acknowledge that if you do have the luxury of thinking about it and planning for it, that there are good conversations to be had and tools to have those conversations with. But motherhood is the toughest job in the world comes out of this post-World War II re-entry of women into the domestic sphere. And yeah. now <laughs> that uh, they are have this time on their hands, um, their children sort of become their work. Um, so children go from going to work in the earlier mm-hmm. part of the century to becoming work in the second mm. half of the century. And as you see women start to treat children like an occupation, you see the hours of parenting, hands-on parenting, go up. What you don't see is a lot of decrease in any other hours that women are putting yeah. in. So now we have women putting in more hours at work and at home than ever before. It's like we're on steroids, believing that we can still have it all, and we don't actually have to say no to anything to mm-hmm. say yes to motherhood. And, and so what we're finding, what researchers are finding, is that it's just really bad for women's health, this move towards the professionalization of motherhood, this move towards intensive parenting. So studies have found that the belief that women are the essential parent is bad mm. for women's health. The belief that parenting is tough is bad for women's health, which I find a little infuriating. <laughs> So I'm not supposed to say it's tough or I'm just not supposed to dwell on the fact that it's particularly tough. That this is a very hard thing I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, what it is culminating in is this idea that middle class Americans often put our identity in our work. And so when we call children work, it is very easy to put our identity in how they turn out, how their grades turn out, how their development is going rather than seeing it as one relationship in a larger pie of relationships that we have with ourselves, our neighbor, our faith, our community, our partners, our parents, all kinds of people that we need in order to do the verb of mothering and parenting more broadly well. Hmm. That's That script is so interesting because it is one of those things that you just hear and 
believe and take in and then don't really think that much about. And I'm like, is there like a parallel script for fatherhood? And there's not, is there? Kind of, um, not really. No, yeah, so no, I don't think there is. Um, I really don't think there is. And often you will hear, I have heard fathers venerate motherhood, right? Oh, her mm. job is so much harder than mine. Oh, her, and, and I'm like, I get what you're doing. <laughs> I get that you're, again, wanting to celebrate yeah. um, an often under-celebrated labor. And we do, yeah. we under-celebrate domestic labor, absolutely. But then it also feels like it then decreases the pressure mm-hmm. um, that fathers feel to make parenting their everything and that women don't sort of get that same pressure valve relief. Although I will yeah. say fathers are also putting more hours in than ever before and are saying that parenting is essential to their identity in yeah. very close numbers to women these days. Mm. Um, but I do think there's less social pressure or a different flavor of social pressure. It's uh, very different. I am a, a partner woman who has a two-year-old and I'm also pregnant. And one of the things that I noticed very quickly after having a child, and we joked about it with our friends, is that my husband was celebrated for doing the bare minimum. Like just over the top. And we kind of joked like, oh, the Midwestern moms were just so impressed by him. Like, he's changing a diaper. My grandmother literally said to me, I had seven children and my husband didn't change a single diaper. Like, he's just such a great father. And my husband, like, would joke and say, like, I know, I know. But he's a very involved dad. And he's like, it almost feels demeaning of, like, no, I'm an equal part in this. Like, I want to I wanna enter and I want to be just as much a part of this process. But it is a really interesting dynamic that men, like— are just celebrated for showing up and I think often doing the bare minimum. And it's something that came into stark contrast, like the moment my child was born. So that is just my own personal experience with that. I think that is very real. And I've been wondering, (laughs) I have been wanting to read more books by dads recently Mm -hmm. because I do feel like there's assumption, an assumption, especially if you have a biological child yeah, um, and in your and your mother, that your fundamental identity and sense of purpose and meaning changes the moment you have that child. And yeah. and I know there are very cool biological things happening. Um, <laughs> yeah, to to propel that feeling. And I'm so curious that we don't also look at fathers typically. Yeah, and assume that they have a radical before and after in their life to the same degree as women, even though, again, we have seen some studies that show there are biological changes in fathers when they become parents. There are Mm. biological changes sometimes in adoptive parents or grandparents when a baby is born. And so these things aren't unheard of. But again, you're right. There is so much pressure on women to not only do the majority of the labor, but also to feel for their children in exceptional ways that men aren't privy to, or so goes the script. And so I'm just so curious what that feels like for for fathers who do want more, either do find more of their identity in children than their female partners, um, or don't want to be celebrated like like a child when they do. Uh, The smallest thing, but I didn't study them for this book, so someone else can do that work. Yes, someone else can do that task for you. Um, But even that idea of, 
unentwining our identity from our children. I remember before I even had children, I remember saying, I don't want to do that. I remember watching a talk by Shauna Nyquist where she talked about like the importance of your kids seeing you fully alive and how you needed to continue to pursue things and um, what her mother had taught her. And it like, I remember I saw years before I had children, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. But there is this allure and there's so much pressure within a Christian context, within an American context, within the environment I am, just to fall into that. It's almost easier to just fall into, okay, now I've had a child and my identity is this. But I think it is a huge disservice to your children. And I um, love that you were bringing all the research up with that of it's actually worse for you. And how do we start to unentangle our identity? And what does that do to free us up to actually be our most whole selves and maybe a better parent? Yeah. And just adding on to that, Mm because I was kind of having, I have a question that's circulating in my head too. That's like prior to having a kid, my identity certainly was more entwined with work, as you mentioned. Yes, And that then it's like you have a child and then it's like it gets bifurcated where it's like oh I I work and I have a baby you know but I how do we like right size and put our identity in who we are and yeah yeah what's the advice for like reconstructing that identity that I think so many people get it wrong yeah this is lifelong work (laughs) so you don't have an easy answer for us three easy steps um but I can tell you some things that were and are still important to me. Um, yeah. Part of this book is a story of rewriting my own story because it didn't make sense to me why I had become a parent and it didn't make mm-hmm. sense to me why other people were so excited about it. And so part of the book is about how do we write more generous stories for ourselves and for other people. One of the ways I do that and I'm learning to do that is by really trying to move from mother as noun to mother as verb. Mm. Because I do think there's something about noun that puts on a heavy cloak. (laughs) I am a mother. I am eternally a mother. I will never not be a mother. And there is something about mother than noun that feels sometimes way too all-encompassing for me. Even Mm. if it's in a list of other things that I am, There's something about the noun that feels much more closely tied to my identity than when I start referring to like mothering and I am mothering. I'm in a season of mothering. Um, I can mother my own children. I can mother other people's children. I can mother myself. I can mother my own mother. And I find something so democratic about Mm. mother as a verb that anyone can embody, even men even people that don't identify on the gender binary. If, mm-hmm. if, the, if the verb fits, great. Like, let's start naming some of the work that you are already doing to care for your people as mothering. That's good. And there's something about that that also lets me say, okay, I am putting mothering down, and now I am writing, and now I am reading. And now, right, and life's not that clear. Obviously, these things are intersecting from time to time, but I think there is something really powerful that I learned from other women writers who write about mothering as a verb that is one way I'm trying to reframe for myself. I am a person who is doing the work of mothering. Hmm. Yeah. I think another thing that helps disentangle, again, is 
doing the work of mothering in community Mm. (laughs) and just realizing, yeah, I am better off when there are other adults in my life who are essential to me and my children, right? So coming back to the idea that women are the essential parent is mm. not helpful to anyone. Actually, that kind of veneration is, is too much and puts too much pressure, I think, on women, especially if that work of mothering doesn't come easily or doesn't feel like the thing they want to be giving 99% yeah. of their time to. So I think that's part of the reason why my partner and I chose to foster and then adopt because we were like, if we become parents and we weren't even thinking of it as becoming parents, we were thinking of it as co-parenting in community. We wanted to co-parent in community. We didn't actually want children of our own um, in quotation marks and quickly realized um, that all of the things that other people were worried about with fostering, oh, you're going to have so many social workers in your home oh, you've got so many like appointments and like government paperwork. And I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to be co-parenting with the government. Like I would like to be subsidized in my work. (laughs) I would like uh, a bunch of therapists and legal experts. And like, I would like these other adults to come around me and, Mm -hmm. and do the work with me. And honestly, when the adoption went through, a lot of that support was no longer a regular part of our rhythms. And I grieve that. And I still think, how can I regularly have people in my life that remind me that I'm not going to be the only essential adult in my child's life? Yeah. Mm. And how do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just hard. I just think our society so much, um, like, just puts it on the parents. And as much as... I, I jokingly say like that Ben, my son, is like a community baby all the time. Like I'm like, yeah. I had him for everyone and I want people to like join in. But like the practicality of that can be kind of hard and awkward where it's like I I do want to invite people in. I do need their help. I do try to ask for it. But it, yeah. I feel like instinctually, too, there's like kind of this natural sense of I got this, too, that I have mm. to fight all the time. Hmm. Well, good for you. I have a natural sense of I don't got this. <laughs> I don't got this. <laughs> Maybe that helps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know what it's like to parent a child under five. Our girls came to us when they were six, eight, and ten, and now they're teenagers. Yeah. And so I do think there are seasons where inviting other people to co-parent with you are easier. And eventually your kids will start advocating for not you. <laughs> Not you, please, not you. (laughs) So in our lives, one way we've done that is by really carefully choosing godparents. Hmm. So our girls grew up Catholic in their family of origin um, and had godparents. And we learned part of their tradition was you could have as many godparents as you want. Like it wasn't this American notion of there will be one man and one woman and they will be a partnership and they will be your god. So for our youngest, we chose like two single women who don't know each other. And for our oldest, we chose a really lovely couple in their 60s um, who -hmm. already raised children. And for our middle, we chose a really fun couple with kids her age because she's just all about fun and doesn't want to have a serious conversation come within 10 feet of her. And so I think that's one of the ways where we have tried to like deputize 
yeah. for lack of a better word, adults and give them actual like titles and roles. Like you are not just a friend. Like we are asking you to do something specific and we want you to feel ownership mm-hmm. of our kid in a way that we have responsibility for them because we have a title. And so I do think in that way, titles can be really helpful to say, hi, I'm here, I have a role. And I know that that means I'm going to be there then when they get confirmed in the church. I know that means I'm going to be there then when they plan their quinceanera. I know that means I'm going to be there then um, when they have a birthday. And so sometimes I think we just need more sacraments outside of the traditional sacraments yeah. yeah, to give people like real authority to speak into our lives and to come alongside us without permission. Because I agree, Lindsay, if, if it's all on you to name your need and be really good at advocating for yourself, that just gets really tiring really fast. Yeah. I'm over here taking notes. I love that you had the opportunity with how you're your um, daughters came into your family to do it when their personalities had established a little bit. So you could say like, oh, I know these would be a good fit and this would be here. And so even going outside of the tradition of like, could I give my two-year-old godparents like, you know, in a year? Yes. Yes. I love that. (laughs) I could. That's awesome. And I love the idea of the intentionality and creating the community. Lindsay mentioned that she had a baby for the whole community. And I think you are someone who has done a really good job externally of inviting lots of voices in. But I would also make up that the practicality at the end of the day is, but at the end of the day, it's just me and I'm putting you down, you know, like, (laughs) so I love giving it some structure and some intentionality to that too. Hey friends, if you've been listening to the podcast for very long, you have heard us talk about our digital classes and courses. But what you may not know is that we are now offering our classes and courses in a brand new platform. This new platform is easy to use, it's more interactive, and it comes with access to our incredible beta community, where you can meet like-minded people, talk about your emotional health journey, and find an incredible amount of emotional and mental health resources. I love these resources and they have been a game changer for me in my emotional and mental health. At Onsite, we often say that emotional health is not just something we need, it's something we all deserve. But putting that into practice can be easier said than done. I know in my own life, I love the accessibility, the affordability, and the approachability of what digital offers. So I encourage you to check out our digital classes and our courses at onsiteisonline.com. And I'd love to see you in the community. So head to the checkout and make sure to use the code podcast to get 15% off your entire purchase. One of the things that I know that you are passionate about, Erin, is kind of diving into the concept of purpose and some of the work that you do. You lead people through that. You help them figure out like this mixture of like calling and choice and happenstance and all of that. And so could you speak to how important that is in conjunction with this idea of mothering as well, this verb of mothering? Yes. So I am a huge proponent that when possible, motherhood is better discerned than destined. And I think (laughs) to get theological, to get nerdy about it, Um, We are all made in the image of a creator who has given us the superpower of co-authoring our lives, that we are not like these 
robots um, who just follow a set script and insert Aaron here. But we are people who do get to like write our story yeah. inside some bigger stories. And I, my, I mean, my biggest fear for my own girls um, is that they will believe that life happens to them and not with them. And so I think the work of spiritual discernment is just acknowledging that life happens with us and not to us. And that doesn't mean we have control over anything. I mean, <laughs> we have control over some things. And yeah. the practice is to sit and listen to your life and start to do an internal inventory, as my friend Janelle says, a fierce mm -hmm. inventory of what you know to be true about yourself and who are the voices that have authority. They might be from your religion. They might be from your family of origin. They might be from sacred texts. They might be from modern poets. But who do you let access into helping you sift reality from fiction when it comes to the narratives you tell about yourself? Yeah. And then how do you test those truths in community? Because I'm also not about people just sitting down by themselves and being yeah. like, this is what I meant to do. <laughs> You're like, hi, the rest of us are here. And like, we are all in this together. And mm. so, yes, please do your fierce inventory. But then please do an inventory of the world you live in. Yeah. And notice some things. Notice some things about the limits that are, are put upon you because of who you are and how you exist. And let's actually get creative with how we can create a life within limits um, rather than trying to pretend we are children of the American 80s who can be anything we want to be. No, no. There's it's some a hard data. one for me. <laughs> There's a hard note for me. Yeah. There's some data that lives within you and your body that's worth paying attention to hmm. that does put some bounds on probably what you will feel called to do and want to do in your life. And then there's some data coming from your community that's worth paying attention to. And again, that's how my partner and I unexpectedly became parents. We really didn't want to parent. We just really wanted to be good neighbors. And if it were left up to us, we probably would still be child-free. But something compels you when you start to ask, all right, I've got these particular desires, but how can I let the world shape my desires into something that's good for us all? Mm. I love that. Really good. So what did that circle of people kind of look like for you? And what was that process like as y'all begin to step into it and try it on? Well, the discernment process in particular, we called a Quaker Clearness Committee mm. to help us discern when very quickly we met these three girls. We were fostering them for five or six months before the termination of parental rights happened and we had to sort of decide, did we want to help them find their forever home or did we want to put our hat in for possibly being their forever home? And I am a courage and renewal facilitator, which is a facilitator um, who has been trained by Parker Palmer, a Quaker author and activist. Um, he's like my favorite author ever. So. He's, I mean, he is the real deal. I mean. He's the real deal. And he founded something called the Center for Courage and Renewal to help mm -hmm. people do the work of purpose, practice, wholehearted living. 
Yeah. So clearness committees are something that the Quaker community has been practicing for centuries. And while it was originally used to discern marriage, I thought, why not use it? Why not use it to discern parenting? And it can be used to discern any number of questions. So we called on two or three friends who knew us really well and knew us from different life stages. Mm. We called on a fellow facilitator of mine to facilitate the group for us because I didn't want to do that, right? I just wanted (laughs) to be present to whatever was happening. Lots of roles, yeah. Right? Um, And then we had a stranger we invited in too, Um, someone that had heard the story for the first time. And I shouldn't say this person wasn't like off the street, but my (laughs) my facilitator buddy, I was like, pick someone you know that doesn't know us, um, that you know who could hold this space well. And so we, we sat together for two or three hours on a Saturday and we raised all of our fears and we raised all of our hopes and we raised all of our yeah, um, squishy bits. Um, And the whole premise is they are not there to give you advice. They are there to hear you into deeper and deeper speech. And they do that by asking you really generous, gentle questions. That was my question because I have heard about it ancillarily and I have a friend who did it recently about like a career change she was trying to do and my husband was invited to speak into it. And I was just like gathering all the data from the side of like, what is this? What's happening? So they're only allowed to ask you questions. And what kind of like, what do those two or three hours look like? I think. Yeah. So there's always poetry. There's always poetry. You always start with a poem. (laughs) You have a time of grounding. Mm -hmm. Then you have a time where they're called the focus people, the people who Mm -hmm. have an issue, a challenge, attention, get to just tell their story. That could be five minutes. That could be 15 minutes. But you obviously don't want to take the whole time talking. Setting up the problem. (laughs) Typically, you're just rehearsing what you already know in that setting. Um, And you're giving people enough details to be able to ask you thoughtful questions. But then really, for about the next hour and a half, there's silence. There are questions. And the questions are meant to be questions that actually the people asking them don't know the answer to. Hmm. So not leading questions, not don't you think you'll regret it if you don't? (laughs) Yeah. Like not those kinds of questions. Questions about like, when are you most sure of Hmm. what you want to do? When do you feel closest to God as you're discerning? What are you afraid will happen? Which decision or way feels more fear-based? And I think the question that actually was the biggest breakthrough for us is I think someone asked, is there a third way? Because the problem we had brought to them was, okay, either we're going to adopt these children or we're never fostering again because Mm. that was hard. This is hard. The on-ramp is really hard uh, and we don't want another on-ramp. I don't know that we're suited for this. And so we came out of that time with this question of, is there a third way? And, and that's really, that's the question we brought to the therapist. And essentially they said, yes, um, you can keep co-parenting in community. So you can keep being in relationship with the birth family. Hmm. You can keep asking other adults into your life. Because of the age of our girls and how many of them there were, we didn't intend to foster three but that's its own story. Uh, We get government assistance until each of them turn 18. 
And so in some ways, this is the only way I could imagine parenting is communal, subsidized, (laughs) and from the beginning, holding it really loosely and realizing Mm -hmm. I was one adult in a nexus of adults that would take responsibility for these, these cool, these cool cats. Uh, And then the time ends with uh, mirroring. So people Mm -hmm. aren't giving you advice. They're not starting, trying to wrap up what you said in a tiny bow, but they are mirroring back. I heard you say this. Mm. When you answered this question, your shoulders sagged. And so they're just, again, giving you more data um, for you to sift through so that you can make a decision that feels good. Maybe not right, Mm. but good. I think right is a really rare and rigid thing. Such a beautiful process. I remember reading Let Your Life Speak, one of Parker Palmer's books that's about vocation. And um, (laughs) it just, he he tells a story in it about he was sort of trying to discern whether or not he should take this job that he thought was sort of the pinnacle. And he was gathered with the clearness committee and they sort of helped him see that, no, he shouldn't take it. It was like mostly about his ego or something and that he'd actually hate the work of it. And I, I that drew my interest in uh, and so I started wanting to learn more. And so I read, I think it's A Hidden Wholeness. Is that yes. his book that sort of dives into the process of clearness yes. committees? Yes. And a lot of people have picked that up and adapted it um, yeah. to invite people into clearness committees without a trained facilitator. And I think if you have mature people you trust, um, that that also can be a way of learning more about this process on your own uh, and also coming alongside other people and practicing it and testing it out. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. And, and you kind of jokingly said, it always starts with a poem, you know, <laughs> like there's always poetry. And I remember in reading about them that they sort of use art and poetry to sort mm-hmm. of help deepen the space and uh, allow room for more curiosity and creativity. I might not be saying the right thing, but I'd love to hear you speak more about that piece of the committees as well. It just seems so cool because it seems like, oh, that would be frivolous. But I love how intentional it is that they use some outside medium to help usher in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, we call those third things. So it's not you, it's not me. It's something we get to gaze at together. And Mm. it takes the heat off of just having a face-to-face conversation where I would say, Mackenzie, do you want to have more children? (laughs) And you would say, let me think about that. I mean, there's something about those questions when we ask them directly um, Mm -hmm. that, again, can get us stuck in ruts, right? We can rehearse the same answer. We can rehearse the same factors. We can rehearse what we think other people want to hear when we answer that question. And there's something about these third things, like you said, art that can be in the form of music, poetry, um, rituals, painting, that actually gets you out of the story you've already told yourself about what you think you should do or how you're paralyzed to know how to move forward. And it's, really beautiful and really relaxing (laughs) to begin with other words that are not your own 
and Mm. let those be an invitation as you sit in dialogue with yourself. It's almost like you're accompanied by wisdom greater than, than your own. Lindsay, um, the whole process, some of the ways that it's structured and even just the quote-unquote magic of happens of it reminds us a lot of our group experience that we do at OnSite, um, where people are kind of walking through their own story, but other people are brought in as objective observers, right? They're a part of the process, and they're getting as much healing out of watching you come to this realization, and then they're reflecting back to you what, like, when you did this, I know that I related in this way, and It just feels so communal, and I think some of the biggest breakthroughs that I've had in my own story have come in the context of community, of someone seeing me in a way that I can't see myself. And so that process, I just am all giddy thinking about it. Like, it just sounds so beautiful and so invitational, and like someone not pushing an agenda on me, but helping me come to the conclusion that I knew was inside of me all along. We often say that at OnSite, like you have everything inside of you. You just need someone to help you find it and dig it back up. So I love that. So beautiful. It's like we all want to be having those kind of conversations all the time and to experience that kind of depth and to help other people find clarity in their lives. And it's like we need these ancient traditions or Mm -hmm. guides to help us like know how to do it because we've just either forgotten the way or it's just not something we drift into. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is so lovely. Anytime I hear about it, I always kind of want to lean in of like, I want more of that in my life. And I want to foster those kind of conversations with the people closest to me and to create room for that. I even think like that something as simple as like attending a book club, it mm-hmm. always kind of unearths like utilizing a book as a guide. It kind of unearths conversations that you wouldn't have in the everyday, you know, it's, but it is just so great to be able to use that as a guide of like, let's talk about these things that are all living within us and help bring them out in each other. So I love that. I, that is my life's (laughs) nerd alert. (laughs) I am so much less concerned with what we do with our lives than how we do with our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the lifelong work that there are, and maybe this is just because I'm a liberal arts major, but I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I think there are any number of paths we could yeah. be on and be happy, healthy, and whole. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of relationships and lots of jobs and lots of places we could live. And so for me, the, the lifelong work is the like, okay, what's the how then? How do I want to show up in these places? How do I want to befriend myself? Because myself is going to be in all of these places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how can I be a friend to others as I move through the world with my hands more open? Yeah. I wish we asked kids, you know, how do you want to be when you grow up rather mm-hmm. than what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I love that. It makes me think of something you mentioned in your book, and I would love as a rounding out, if you'd maybe expand on the idea or this concept about paying attention to your deep calling. And I loved how you talked about it wasn't, it was less about vocation and more about your being. And so you kind of touched on that. And I was like, I want to hear it just a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) So Howard Thurman, Dr. Howard Thurman, mystic, theologian, scholar, uh, had this beautiful uh, baccalaureate speech that he gave to Spelman College graduates in the 80s. 
in which he talked about listening for the sound of your genuine and that Mm. that is your lifelong work. And uh, he went on to give examples of what the sound of your genuine might sound like. And it wasn't, I am going to be an editor at a magazine. I am going to be married and have three children. He was like, it's much more elemental than that. It's more like, I want to be fully seen and fully spent. Or um, I want to be in community with people who I can uh, laugh and cry with, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, um, it's actually specific to you, but so elemental that it actually connects you to the common good and the common desires that we all hold and have. And that, again, we could do in Mm -hmm. any number of situations, settings, relationships, yeah. And he argues it's the it's the sound in you that is the sound of God that is what connects you to that image in you of a creator who longs to be connected to creation. So for me, uh, while writing the book, I was like, I I want to be free and I want to be full. I want to be free to hold the fullness with inside of me. Um, and that mm. is... That is why I chose to be child-free for a long time, because I wanted to have margin and space for Mm -hmm. how noisy this world is. (laughs) But I also wanted to be useful, which is why I ended up unexpectedly fostering and then saying, yeah, I can be, I can take responsibility for these children. I can do the work of love with these children. Mm. I can learn how to shapeshift and receive wisdom from these children. So I think that is my invitation uh, (laughs) to others is to get still and quiet, Mm -hmm. to listen to the sound of the genuine and see if you can't come up with a statement. I have a sound of the genuine worksheet uh, on my website. Mm -hmm. If anyone wants to look it up, it's in the store section, but you can do like a five page worksheet um, and do some meditation on what's your statement and what is that grounding desire that carries you through whatever you end up doing. Hmm. So awesome. This has been such a beautiful conversation. Lindsay and I were both so excited to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, Erin. And everyone go out and get your book. I feel like it is such a gift to the world. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.